0: Right, good morning everyone. It's great to be together this morning. It's nice to see some new faces amongst us. It's nice to see some old friends amongst us as well. Uh, If you are new, uh, my name is Josh. I'm part of the leadership team here. Uh, So welcome, it's great. If I've not been able to say hello to you, someone else would have, but I also want to say hello, welcome. Uh, So today we are continuing our new series, Looking at the book of Ruth, last time we had a brilliant uh, reading through the book of Ruth with our narrator and our three characters. Uh, We met Naomi, we met Ruth, we met Boaz, it was absolutely fantastic. Today we are going to kind of go back, we've got the overview of the book. I trust a lot of small groups looked through the book, not everyone did but a lot did. Today we're going to zoom in at the beginning at Ruth chapter Ones, if you've got your Bibles, I would encourage you to bring a Bible with you, whether it's like an old-school paper copy, um, hipster, I like to think, or whether it is a phone. I, can see, I can't see any paper copies. Am I the only one? Yes, Emily. One, two, we've got two. Uh, or if it's a phone, that is, of course, just as, as good. As we go through the book of Ruth over the next six weeks or so, up until summer, our prayer is that as we we go through it, we will see God using ordinary people to do extraordinary things. It's The story of the book of Ruth. God using ordinary people to do extraordinary things. As we look at the hidden hand of God in very, very normal people's lives. And I trust, as we do that, we will see what God is calling us to do, in this city, in our lives, as we go from this city perhaps to the nations. Today we are looking at the hidden hand of God, and we're looking at the hidden hand of God in suffering. Okay, so I'm going to pray. It's a bit of a challenging kickoff to the series, looking at suffering, but I'm trusting God that he's going to use it, and so I'm going to pray and ask God through the Holy Spirit to really equip us and feed us. So Holy Spirit, we just ask you to to fill us this morning. We just pray. We thank you for your word, God. We thank you that you have given us scripture. We thank you it's alive, that it's active. Just pray this morning as we open it uh, to, the, to the early chapter of Ruth, Lord, that you'll just speak to us, that you'll change us. I pray, Lord, that we will leave this place transformed, changed. Like we believe for that. We believe that your word can transform us through the Spirit. And so we pray for that this morning. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Okay, Ruth, chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So just a little bit of context uh, before we dive in. The days when the judges ruled were an incredibly, incredibly dark time in the history of Israel. If you read the book of Judges you will very quickly understand that these are not stories for the faint-hearted. They're bloody. Israel is really at its lowest point. There's no kind of national leadership. There's the 12 tribes, the judges that God raises up, people like Samson and Gideon and Deborah. But it's really, generally, an incredibly, incredibly dark, dark time in Israel's History. There's this cycle of events that happens. Okay, So Joshua brings them into the promised land. End of Joshua. Joshua dies. Then we see judges. And and Joshua says to his people, Obey God. Listen to God. Look at what he's done. Obey him. And the Israelites do not obey. The people of God do not obey. And there's this cycle of events where they kind of rebel. They get defeated by a local um, neighbor. They repent. They realize their mistake. Perhaps that is when someone is raised, ra- like a judge is raised up, like Samson, for example, and they rest. There's a time of rest, and then it all happens again. And so there's just this cycle as you go through the book of Judges, it's going from bad to worse to really bad until we get to the end few chapters of Judges. And it's just that like Israel is totally, totally just not following God. They're just like the Canaanites. They're just like their Gentile neighbors. They're just like the people who don't follow God. They look exactly the same. You couldn't tell them apart. And so in Judges 21, verse 25, you read this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That summarizes this season of Israel, this period of the time of Judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There was no king, no physical king, no spiritual king. They did whatever was right in their own eyes. And God has warned them about this. So if you look at Deuteronomy 28, you see God promise, if you obey my commands, I will bring blessings, blessings to the womb, blessings to the city, to the country, to to your crops. I will bring blessings. But then he says, but if you don't obey, if you disobey my commands, I will bring curses, curses to the womb, curses to the country, curses to the city, curses to the crops. You will be cursed. And so when we get to judges and they've not kept the commands of God, we meet a people who are cursed. We meet a people who have received the judgment of God because they have not obeyed his commands. God is faithful. And we like to think about that in a positive way. But here we see the faithfulness of God actually in quite a challenging way. He says, if you disobey, this will happen. They disobey, this happens. There is famine in the land. And so Bethlehem, as we kind of land at the beginning of Ruth, this place that literally means, the word Bethlehem, the house of bread, has no bread. The barns are empty. The fields are barren. Judgment of God has come, but God is full of grace. You know, a third of the Mosaic law, the commands, hundreds of them, a third is all about what to do when you have broken the commands. Because God is a God of grace, He's always willing to give another chance. And so, Deuteronomy 30 talks about if you listen, if you obey, if you turn back to me, then. I will make you prosperous, your hands, your womb, the crops. Just turn back to me. He's always ready to give another chance. And so in a time where there was no king, we meet this man called Elimelech, whose name literally means, my God is my king. So in this time, what is a man whose name is my God is my king going to do? As there is famine in the land, are we going to find one man who is going to stand up, who is going to return to God, ask God for mercy? What is my God, is my king going to do? How will he respond? Let us read on. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, uh, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name Elimelech, his wife's name, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Machlon and Kilion. They were (laughs) Epaphathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. And after they had lived there for about ten years, both Machlon and Kilian also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughter-in-laws prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. And if we jump to verse 19, So the two women accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. So how does Elimelech, my God is my king, respond in a time of famine? It says this, they went to Moab and lived there. What Elimelech does is he summarizes the people in the days of the judges by doing what was right in his own eyes. He designed his own solution. There's famine, there's food. Instead of trusting God, instead of repenting and turning back to God, I'm going to practically find my own solution. And he takes his family down to Moab. Now, Moab, Israel's ancient enemy. They have history. Okay, so it started with Lot and his daughter. And then from there, the Moabites are coming into the story, and they regularly cause trouble for Israel. Israel tries to get through the land. They, They try to stop that in every way they can. Basically, Moab, for the Israelites, is trouble. It's not a good neighbor. And as soon as Elimelech and Naomi and the boys get to Moab, they find trouble, just like Israel always has when they come up against Moab. So living outside of the promised land, the land that God had brought them to, suddenly they find themselves outside of the promised land. Quickly after that, Naomi loses her husband. Quickly after that, Naomi loses her two sons, which in the culture of the day... I mean, it's horrific in today's culture here in Gothenburg, but in the culture of the day... You, you might as well not be alive. Naomi is as good as dead. She has lost all her future hope. She's lost her husband, Her, like, she's just lost everything. She has no hope. Her life is functionally over. And we've got to get this in our heads. If we see it as bad, it was very, very bad. There was no point in Naomi living. She wouldn't have committed suicide, but if she died, she would have probably been happy. There's no point in living. And so when she gets back to Bethlehem, and she laments, I went away full, but I came back empty. She's not being over the top. She's not being melodramatic. She went away full, she comes back empty. She has lost everything in Moab. Absolutely everything. And so as we start the book of Ruth, we are introduced to a very intense piece of scripture. A piece where there's no hope. Naomi is like at the absolute lowest. She has no hope. This piece of scripture speaks of people who make mistakes. It speaks of Elimelech, who, as I said, instead of listening to God, decides to try and make his own way out of the problem by going to Moab. It speaks of people who choose the easy path. It speaks of people who did right in their own eyes. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And when we think about today, I would suggest there is no better summary for the world that we live in today than that. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. You can be, think, feel, look exactly how you want to look. If you feel it, you do it. I often will tell people that I love Jesus, and he... he Jesus, God, becomes man and he lives and he died and he's resurrected and now he's alive and it's this amazing truth and I'm kind of getting excited and hey, believe in the resurrection because that changes everything and then I can get a response, oh, if that's your truth, great. It's not my truth. I'm like, this is earth-shattering, amazing news. If that's right in your eyes, it's not right in my eyes. This is the culture of the day that we find ourselves in and let's not think it is just outside of the church. This culture comes into the church where we cherry-pick Scripture. We think, well, that's not right in my eyes. That's not how I see it. So I'm going to flip, flip over the page. I don't like what that says about the, the situation I was in or what God would like me to do with my life or the way that I should live my life before I'm married. I'll flip the page. I will do what is right in my own eyes. It's not just a cultural problem out there. It's very much a cultural problem in the church today. Sadly, so many amazing leaders have lost their way because they do what is right in their own eyes instead of saying, God, what is right in your eyes? It's the cultural climate of today. 3,000 years ago, this book approximately was written. Boy, does it speak into Gothenburg 2022. It's beautiful how God's word is alive. It talks of major suffering. It talks of unfulfilled hope. It talks of fear of the present. There's no food. Fear of the future. How will I provide for my family? We can all find ourselves in this story. We can all take our place alongside Ruth, alongside Naomi, alongside Boaz, as as we go through this series. And so we've got to ask ourselves, what can we learn from this story? And the first thing I want to suggest is that we should expect suffering. We should expect suffering. The Bible is completely full of people who suffered. Abraham and Sarah weren't able to have children. Joseph spent many years as a slave in prison. Job, the epitome of suffering in biblical language, loses everything. Naomi, again, loses everything. Turn over to the New Testament. You've got Paul, you've got the Apostle Paul, shipwrecked, prison, beatings. You've got Jesus himself being laughed at, being mocked, being put up on a cross, even though he did no wrong. So we should, as followers of Jesus, Expect suffering. We must expect it. It shouldn't catch us off guard when we suffer. Philippians 3.10, Paul says this, that I may know Jesus and that I may share in his sufferings. Knowing Jesus is sharing in his sufferings. If you know Jesus today, you share in his sufferings. If you don't know Jesus today, Jesus suffered for you talks in the Bible about being dead, our state before trusting Jesus, that we were dead, we were without hope, but God, Jesus, comes in and makes us alive. And he does that by suffering for us, by going to the cross, by dying for you. And so if you don't know that truth this morning, at the end, we're going to have an opportunity to respond to that. If you want to say, I want to know Jesus this man, who, God who became man, who did it for me, who suffered for me. I'm going to have an opportunity at the end to pray for you. But we suffer. It's part of following Jesus. It's part of knowing Jesus. Roman, Romans 8 talks about being conformed into his image. He suffered. So we'll be conformed into the image of suffering. So the question is not if we will suffer, but how do we respond when we suffer? It's absolutely vital for maturing as a Christian. Not seeing suffering as God does not love me. I will hold my hand up and say there's many unanswered prayers that I have. And a journey that I'm going through for sure and have gone through is, oh, but where's God? He's not answering my prayers. It's absolutely vital as we, as we become mature followers of Jesus, to understand that if we suffer, it doesn't mean that God is not there. It's just reality. Just part of following Jesus. One author says this, when God does not meet our expectations, it opens the door not just to despair, but also to cynicism, to shutting down our hearts to God. When God doesn't give us what we want, it opens the door to us shutting our hearts to him. Probably because we're Children of the culture, where you can just put everything on a credit card and get everything. Sometimes, you know, God says no. He says stop. He says wait. He says not now. Sometimes he says yes. It's so important that we understand that we will suffer as part of being a follower of Jesus, as we transformed into his image. The question that we should challenge ourselves with is how do we respond when we suffer I want to give a couple of points to that from this story. And the first thing is, be honest in suffering. Be honest in suffering. I am from England, and uh, if you introduce yourself to someone, you, say, you always will say, how are you? So if you, if you know someone well, if you don't know them, you always say, how are you? And no matter what day you have had, okay, you could have had the best day of your life absolutely kind of like, everything is going well, you're just going off on holiday, like it's just all so good, or you literally could have just had the worst news you have ever heard. There is only one response that you're allowed to give as someone from England. Does anyone know what that is from England? Fine. Yes. <laughs> fine, thanks. I'm fine. That's it. That is all you say. If, by the way, those that aren't English amongst us, if you say to someone who is English, how are you? Or they say to you, how are, they say, how are you? Please just respond, fine, thanks. Okay? If you say anything else, you're like, you will blow their brain. They will not know how to handle it. Okay? Just say, I'm fine, thanks, even if you're having a horrific, horrific day. But that's, that's, that's the culture that I'm from. What I love about this story is that Naomi is so real with her suffering. She's so honest in her suffering. Let's read verse 21. The Lord has afflicted me. The Lord has brought misfortune on me. I was full, but now I'm empty. Don't call me pleasant, know me. That's what Naomi me means. Pleas- Don't call me pleasant. Call me mara, bitter. She's so honest in her suffering. And the Psalms speak honesty to God in suffering. As example after example in the Psalms, of honest speaking in suffering to God. Psalm 22, perhaps the best, most well-known, because this is what Jesus quoted. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, I'm fine, thanks. Jesus wasn't English. <laughs> just going to throw that one out there. I've learned something today. My God, my God, what have you forsaken? He is honest in his suffering. And you know what? God is big enough to hear our frustrations. He's big enough to hear it hurts. He's big enough to hear I'm disappointed. I've been pushing for something and it's not coming. I've been praying for someone and it's not happening. God is big enough and wants to hear us being honest in suffering. If we take an English approach to suffering, we're missing the point. We are being called to be honest in our suffering. And I want to encourage us and challenge us as a church. Let's be a people who are honest in our suffering. As we approach God, as we approach each other, So, if I ask you how you are, you are allowed to say something other than, I'm fine, thanks. We don't just want to be like a shiny, mask, kind of fake people who are have it all together every Sunday morning or at a small group, but actually our living lives are just completely broken. We want to be a people who can say, do you know what? I'm having a really difficult time. My heart is breaking for this thing. Now, now that doesn't mean that we should always say that. Through God's grace, he gives us good things, and we can be having a good day, and that's okay to say, of course. But, but if we are in difficulty, if we are going through suffering, if we just hide that up, we are kind of missing the point of what it is to be family as a church. Family goes through everything. Celebration and despair. So let's be honest in suffering. Naomi was honest in suffering. A second thing uh, is that she, I want us to see the bigger picture in suffering. And so here we see the hidden hand of God in the midst of suffering. Uh, Joseph after all the years of suffering, he says this in uh, chapter 50, verse 20, right at the end of Genesis. He says, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. We must see the bigger picture in suffering. It's not necessarily going to be easy, I understand that. For Naomi, she never saw the bigger picture. She doesn't know that soon she was going to help Ruth and Boaz get together and they would have a child called Obed, who would have a child called Jesse, who would have a child called King David. She didn't know that. She's in the story. We have the beauty, the privilege of living a few thousand years later and kind of being able to read it in four chapters. She didn't know that. And so it's not going to be easy as trying to see the bigger picture in suffering. I understand and I get that can be very, very difficult. But we must trust God and see the bigger picture. I love this verse 22 where we finished our reading today. Uh, Because Naomi's suffering takes her home. Probably if the husband, the kids hadn't died, she'd still be in Moab. But her suffering takes her home. And we read this in verse 22, which is just a beautiful hint. Arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. There's a seed of hope. There's a seed of a bigger picture. The barley harvest was beginning. Ruth was about to meet Boaz. The bigger picture was just starting to blossom. And I, feel, I wonder whether there's some of us in this room today who are who just about getting to Bethlehem, and perhaps tomorrow the barley harvest is about to start. Perhaps there's an answer to your prayer that you've been praying for years and years and the barley harvest is just about to begin. Don't lose hope. See the bigger, bigger picture that we are being grafted into God's big story. It's the hidden hand of God. We must hear that. We must understand that God is at work even through suffering. God is working. The barley harvest is beginning. Believe God, the next one. When famine hits, believe God. Elimelech, my God is my king, chose the practical option. God said, turn to me, obey me, follow me, and I will bring blessings. Believe God when the famine hits. And we can all fill in our blank for the famine. For us, it's not food, but perhaps it's unanswered prayer, or frustrations, or questions, or confusion, or suffering. When famine hits, believe God. Nina shared from Mark about knowing God in the storm. As the storm hits, as the famine comes, know God. Believe God. Believe he is who he is says he is. Believe that he is good, even though there is suffering. Believe that he is faithful, even though there is suffering. Believe that he is ready to act, even though he is, there is suffering. Believe that he is the master of the storm. And with one word, he can stop the wind, even though there is suffering. Believe God. Put your hope in God. Don't come up with all sorts of practical ways around the problem. Throw yourself completely into God's goodness, completely into his faithfulness. He is good. He is faithful. Believe God. Finally, know God. Know God in suffering. Luke 15, um, in Luke 15, Jesus talks about this story about the prodigal son. And in the story of the prodigal son, we basically see a lot of parallels. We see Naomi and the son, both full. Father's house, Bethlehem. And then they go to a different land. And in that land, they find trouble. And then they come back home empty. This is what Luke 15:20 says. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him, and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. I believe that suffering can do two things. It can push us away from God. God doesn't love me. God's not interested in me. God doesn't care for me. God's not big enough. It can push us away from God, or it can draw us into God. And as we finish this morning, I just believe that God wants us to know him in the midst of suffering. I believe that there's people in this room today that God just wants to kind of give the Father's embrace to. As we're going through challenges, as we're going through difficulties, I believe God would almost say, I want you to return home. I want you to receive the Father's embrace. I want you to receive... My grace, it's time to come home. And maybe you're living off the back of having made mistakes and you're suffering as a result. Maybe someone has made you suffer. It's nothing to do with you at all. But you're suffering. Naomi, interestingly, I mean, she follows her husband, doesn't she, to Moab. Arguably doesn't do much wrong. Yet she is the one that suffers. And sometimes suffering just comes to us. We've done nothing to... Deserve it, expect it, and it just comes upon us. I believe this morning God wants to meet with us. God wants to embrace us. God wants us to know him in the midst of suffering. Suffering can either take us away from God or it can bring us close to God. I want to encourage you as we worship now that we receive God's love, that we believe God, that we know God, who he is, I just believe that God's going to meet with us. Can I ask us to stand, please? So we're going to respond by singing. Um, I just, as we do that, I just, we don't need everyone to come down the front. Uh, God is here everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Um, but perhaps just where you are if, if anything that I've said today is speaking to you let's respond to that let's respond to him I, specifically if you want to accept Jesus as your saviour if you've never made a decision to accept Jesus as your Lord and saviour my God is my king and I want to encourage you this is the time to do that we don't know what happens this afternoon now is the moment and if you're living through pain, this past hurt, I just believe that God just wants to wrap his arms around you over this next ten minutes through his spirit. So let's let's just let's just spend just a short time just expecting to meet with God. God, we so love you. We thank you that in our suffering, You are there. Lord, we thank you that we don't need to be like anything powerful or special. You don't call us to be those sorts of things. You call us to be honest. You're our Father. We're your children. And I just pray as we sing this song, as we respond, as we break bread in a minute, as we take communion, Lord, that you will so work with us, that you will embrace us. Just pray that you will embrace me. Lord God, I just pray that we will just feel your fatherly embrace.